Our scripture reading this evening is Psalm 78, verses 1 through 16. The portion of Psalm 78 that we just sang together. So that psalm has 27 stanzas. It tells the story of Israel leading up to David becoming king. We read this not for the sake of the whole story, though of course that would be a wonderful thing to do, but we read this evening for the sake of the introduction. That is, what is the purpose that this psalm gives of learning and studying the great deeds of God in history, what we are embarking on doing in our study of the Belgic Confession? Psalm 78, verses 1 through 16. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God." The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it, and made the water stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, our Heavenly Father, We acknowledge that we are sinners, conceived and born in sin, unable of ourselves to do any good. But we do repent of our sins and seek your grace to help us in our remaining weakness. Through the teaching of your word, which we confess with the church throughout the ages, satisfy our hunger and quench our thirst with your refreshing truth, that we with all our hearts may love and serve you with our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the one and only true God who lives and reigns forever. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our lesson from the Belgic Confession is Article 1. It's printed there in your bulletins. We're going to confess these words aloud together. This evening is very much simply an introduction to our study of the Belgic Confession. So you can even see from the outline, your three made Hennigs are simply the first few words of this article. We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths. And so the rest of it is what we're going to be focusing upon next week. This is our confession of faith in response to God's word. Let us say together, 
we all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we begin this evening our study of the Belgic Confession, I want to do something with you that I enjoy very much doing with you from time to time, and that is asking the question of why would we do this? We want to ask this question at multiple levels. There is the great great question of simply why we would gather together a second time on the Lord's Day to study anything at all. I want to discuss that, encourage us with why we're doing what we are doing. I want to openly acknowledge as a minister and as a part of a congregation, that this is a difficult discipline. That the task we are doing of gathering together a second time each Lord's Day is not easy, and it's easy to forget just why not only we should do it, but why we should love doing it. More than that, I want to answer the question of why we would do this as we normally do by using something like the Belgic Confession as our guide. We just read aloud together Article 1 of the Belgic Confession. Some of us have done that in worship our entire lives. Some of us have never done it before. For all of us, both of those and everything in between, we need to ask why would we do such a thing? Many of us are aware that what we are doing is different or strange in the context of much of the modern American church, and so it's helpful to pause and remind ourselves of things perhaps that we already know, but to sort of reinvigorate, re-energize around this task. This evening, I want to do both of those things, so answer why we would make much of studying the truths of Scripture at all, and answer why we would use something like the Belgic Confession by focusing on these first few words of, our, of, of Article 1. Article 1 is a confession of what we call theology proper, the doctrine of God, who God is. But it begins with these words that are an introduction to the Belgic Confession as a whole. These speaking not just of what we confess in Article 1, but what we are doing throughout the confession. We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths. This is where we begin, number one on your outline, with the words, we all. We begin with a corporate, shared confession of faith. Many would ask, where does the authority of the Belgic Confession come from? And there is much I could say about the history of the confession. You have an introduction in the back of your Psalter hymnal, in the forms and prayers books, that can give you all of that history. Interestingly, the authority of the confession does not, first of all, however, come from who wrote it. It comes from it being our shared confession of faith as a church. Letter A, the authority of the Belgian confession comes from it being our shared confession of faith as a church in response to God's word. The pattern is simply this. God speaks in his word, we respond in faith, and the Belgian confession is a way that we do that together. Confessing in response to God's word what God has spoken in his word. And already here is where I want to be answering this question of why are we doing this work at all. When the confession was written, the idea was not, first of all, we need confessions, we need catechisms, just in the abstract. The idea was that God's people need to know what they believe and why they believe it. 
The idea was that God's people need a means, churches need a way to pass on the Christian faith and the knowledge and the content of the Christian faith. And something like the Belgic Confession was written as a tool to do that, as a way of doing that. And so even the act or even the fact of something like this confession existing is a response to Scripture. This is why we read from Psalm 78. Psalm 78 Verse 4 there, quoted on your outline, speaking of the truths that God has revealed in his word. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. This work of gathering together a second time on the Lord's day is a way of focusing on that task of declaring, of passing on, of teaching, of receiving, of learning together, of treasuring together the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Psalm 78 says we must do this with a sense of urgency. Verse 5, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them and the children yet unborn. The psalm refers to a pattern that God has established of generations passing these things on, of teaching the next generation. And notice what the goal of this is. Now, we need to appreciate this. It is so tempting, and I'm going to talk about this more a little bit later. It is so tempting, especially because you have an outline in front of you, to think of this simply as a matter of information, of facts, of data. Now, it includes information, as we're going to talk about, But notice the reason that Psalm 78 gives. Verse 7, so that they should set their hope in God. That this work of teaching generationally, of gathering together as God's people to learn generationally, is one of the things God uses. Now, not mechanically, not automatically, we don't manipulate this. But as a gift of God's grace, it's one of the things that God uses to enable us, to enable the next generation, to set their hope in God. And to do that over against a real danger. The second half of verse 7, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. That faith includes knowledge of God, and so we do this work to pass that on. But you might still ask, I would encourage you to ask, But why with the Belgic Confession? Like, isn't the Bible good enough? Why don't we just use the Bible? What are we doing when we use a confession or a catechism like this? And I want to encourage everyone to ask this. Some of you, you might be new to this, you might be asking it instinctively. I want to affirm your question. The scriptures alone are the final authority for all matters of of, uh, theology and practice in the Christian life. Why would we use the confession? Others of us, We've never thought to ask the question. It's just kind of what we've always known. You also need to ask. Because if we are truly going to love something, we must think deeply about why it is good, about the why of doing it. And that requires asking the question why. And so let her be on your outline. We need to move through this quickly. But I want to give you simply some anchor points for how to think about why it would be appropriate to use something like the Belgic Confession. I'm not going to explain all these fully. There's much more that could be said. These are places simply to sort of anchor yourself with, all right, if I'm making sense out of what we're doing, here is how we do it. Letter B, the role 
of the three forms of unity. I'm introducing a phrase there for some of you. That's how we refer to our confessions. The Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort call them the three forms of unity. All right, how do we think of their role? First, they are our response to God's word. Our response to God's word. The order, our order of worship, our liturgy reflects this. We hear the public reading of scripture. We pray the prayer for illumination. Now we've entered the part that's more of the sermon. And it is there then that we confess the article of the Belgian Confession in response to what God has spoken in his word. Now this is a way of situating it as not being scripture. It absolutely is not. But it has a kind of status as our response to scripture. And so it is always scriptural because it is our response to what God has spoken. Next, it is a summary of God's word. There are many things in Scripture, many truths that we confess that are scriptural, that are a result of centuries of reflection upon Scripture. Many doctrines we confess about God, about the covenant, about the life of the church, that are not found in any one passage, but rather come from all over God's Word. And what the Belgic Confession does for us is summarize some of those things. That's why we should never settle simply for saying what the Confession says. We rather should look and see, and see that what it says is in fact scriptural. It is often alerting us to things that we might not have seen otherwise when it summarizes God's word. Next, I definitely should have used numbers or something here. Bullet point three, a way to express and preserve unity. Many have blamed confessions and catechisms for divisiveness because we like, fight over which ones are right, I guess, something like that. Even there, we should be careful. We ought to view our confession not as a fence by which we keep bad guys out, but as a treasure that we have to offer the broader church. We are part of the one holy Catholic Christian church that includes many, many Christians who are not specifically Reformed. Our confession does not divide us from them. It's rather our contribution to that bigger reality. It's a treasure we have that we offer to the broader church. But it preserves unity specifically by saying, all right, within our, our denomination, within our group of churches, we confess the faith in this united way. And one of the most important ways in which the confessions preserve unity is by saying, these are the most important things. We are free to agree on other things. One of the most important things the confessions say in terms of how our churches are united together is that within the boundary of the confessions, there is great diversity. There are many things that Reformed ministers in our own denomination, our own group of churches would disagree upon, and the confessions draw the line at which we, we are permitted to exist in fellowship together. Bullet point four. They are a way of studying God's word in fellowship with the church before and around us. This is, I think it's fair to say, this is my personal favorite way to summarize what we are doing. All we are doing is studying God's word, studying the scriptures. But we're doing so in a way that acknowledges we are not the first ones to have ever studied God's word. And that we want to study God's word in a way that is guided by, directed by, benefits from the wisdom of those who have come before us. I would encourage you for your own way you think about it, but also the way you represent this to others. To speak of it in that way. Because there's a posture of humility in that that is deeply important. 
Too often when we argue for why we ought to use the confessions, we can come off as it being because we've got it all figured out. We're the ones doing it right, you're doing it wrong. When part of the whole point is that we are acknowledging we don't have it all figured out, and by using the confessions, we are submitting ourselves to the broader Christian church, both before and around us. And it seems to me that when you put it that way, it sounds, well, reckless and frankly bizarre not to use something like this not to use sources that come from the history of the church. There's a kind of reasonableness that almost starts to seem a little bit obvious. Should we not want to study God's word in unity with, in fellowship with, those who have come before us? All of that is embedded in those words, we all, our shared confession as the church of Jesus Christ. Number two, what do we all do? The phrase continues, believe in our hearts. Number two on your outline, this shared confession is at the same time deeply personal. Why do I say at the same time? Well, point one is emphasizing how it's this big churchly thing that we share with other Christians, share with other churches, share with history. What we want to say is that that big thing that we share is owned by us, embraced by us, believed by us personally. And that language of in our hearts reflects that. We believe in our hearts. Letter A. This faith, this belief, is more than rational knowledge, but it is never less than rational knowledge. Now that point may seem like it's coming a little bit out of the blue here, but here's the point. When we say we believe in our hearts, (laughs) that phrase is going to go on for the whole rest of the Belgian Confession to describe all sorts of doctrinal truths that we believe. And the facts, the data, the information, the scriptural ways of speaking throughout those are deeply important. That that faith includes, or is never less than, rational knowledge of true things. Another way of saying this, this believing in our hearts, this faith, is never just a feeling. It's never just a feeling or an experience, but it has a true object. There is an object of our faith. I'd say most of all, the object of faith is God. But more broadly than that, when the scriptures speak of faith, often what they mean is the whole content of what we believe, everything about God. The third verse of Jude says this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The point here is that the faith there has a kind of objective quality. It is a thing that exists outside of your mind, apart from your feelings, that you are then receiving and passing on. So when we speak of believing in our hearts, it's believing in someone And it is believing true things about that someone. It is not just a feeling. And moreover, faith in this context is never, uh, we can never retreat to simply saying it's an irrational thing. That faith is always reasonable. It's always rational. It's more than that, but it includes reasonableness. And the ordering of the Belgian Confession is seeking to affirm that. What we confess ought, therefore, to resonate with reality. The God we confess is the creator God, as we saw this morning in Genesis chapter 1, or actually beautifully as our call to worship said this evening, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
That the goodness of God is not something we just make a you know, random leap to believe in, but it's something that is known and experienced in the way the world is and in the Christian life. And so this belief includes that. Letter B, so what's the point to letter A? That faith is never less than rational knowledge and includes believing true things. Letter B, however, this faith includes personal trust. And with A and B, what I'm trying to capture is the wisdom of the confession's use of the word hearts, that we believe in our hearts. Faith includes personal trust. We think, for example, of the language of Joshua. As Israel is entering into the promised land, the Israelites who have seen the miraculous acts of God, the fall of the walls of Jericho, they were there, they saw it, there was no debating, no uncertainty about the facts of the matter, and yet they were told... Joshua 23, verse 8. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. This language of we believe in our hearts is never just about information. Though C point A, it includes information, rational knowledge, true things. But it is always more than that. It always has an element of personal trust. And this trust is not a matter, sometimes I think we think of it this way, there's the stuff that's reasonable, the data we know, and then there's this gap. There's this, there's this section that's more than that. It's like, I don't know, we, we can't quite get all the way. And so faith is like the leap over the gap. You say, no, the, the, the things we know to be true reasonably are the whole thing. The trust element is the personal commitment to the God we are confessing through the whole thing. When Israel is entering the promised land, there, there was no debating the facts. They, they knew, they saw it happen. How many of us have wondered, you know, if if God would just perform a miracle right in front of me, right, everything would be so much easier. But the universal testimony of Scripture is that that is completely false. The issue is not lack of information. God has made himself known clearly. The issue is our clinging to the Lord, our personal trust in him and leaning upon him and devotion to him and persevering in that and commitment to him. And I find one of the most compelling places where that is expressed is right there in Joshua 23. They had seen all the miracles of entering the promised land and Joshua says, you're going to be tempted to fall away because the issue is that personal trust in the Lord. But here we must be careful because as I say this, as I said this morning, all of us sometimes and some of us all the time are now tempted to go into a tailspin of doubt, right? Because now what do we do? We say, well, do I trust the Lord like that? Do I believe him with all my heart? Am I really leaning on him and trusting in him? And there are plenty of sources you can find through the history of the church and around us today that will give you all sorts of ways to analyze and assess yourself and try to figure out if you really are. Remember, faith is never in itself. We do not have faith in faith. We don't have faith in our own faith. Faith is in God. Faith is in his promises. Faith is in Christ. The whole point of faith is that it looks away from itself. Now, it is a whole person sort of thing. It involves personal trust and loyalty and commitment. But the irony is the moment you start looking at your faith, wondering, wait, does my faith have all that personal trust and commitment? Your faith has stopped doing the one thing faith is supposed to do, which is be looking to the Lord and have faith in him and his promises. And so, brothers and sisters, When you hear this description of faith including trust and you have a moment where what that does for you is it stirs up fear, doubt about yourself. The answer is this simple. Look to Christ, trust in him. Trust God's promises. 
God does not ask you to earn or accomplish or do anything else. Trust in God's promises. Everything else flows from that. The transformed living you want, it flows from that. The feelings of devotion you want, it flows from that. The growth and leaning on Him and truly being devoted to Him, it flows from that. You see how this works. When you have that moment, don't run away from it. Don't hide it. But respond rightly. Look to Christ. Or as Joshua said, cling to the Lord your God. What does all this have to do with studying the Belgic Confession? Well, that is the purpose of all of this. To turn us toward the Lord. To turn us toward Him, not as a matter of mere feeling, but as a matter of confessing true scriptural truths in response to God's Word. But that the confessing of the truths is not just about information in our minds, but it is about our hearts, our whole selves, being turned toward Him. Now, not at every point in our work of doing this is it going to feel that way, and that's okay. But we need the reminder that all throughout, that is the goal. It is forming us as those who are turned toward God. Number three, the introductory phrase of our confession goes further. We all believe in our hearts and, number three, confess with our mouths. Confess with our mouths. Our faith is confessed out loud because it is public truth that speaks to and of the real world. It is something that is spoken out there. It is spoken aloud. Now, this is one way of saying what we've already said, which is that faith is not just a feeling. It includes, it has an object, faith in God, and it involves believing true things about the God in whom you have put your faith. And this God being the creator God means what we are confessing is public truth. It is truth about the whole world. It is publicly accessible truth. It's not just our uh, private spiritual experience. And as Christians, we are constantly tempted to retreat to that. As I've warned you many times, American culture will mostly leave you alone if you retreat to private spiritual experience. But what we confess is about the world because it is the truth of the Creator. And this is the point I want to dwell upon for the rest of our time this evening. That our faith is to be confessed with our mouths. We do this literally. Right? Every evening, every Lord's Day evening, we hear the reading of Scripture and then we read aloud together as a congregation the words of the Belgic Confession. Why do we do this? Letter A. We confess with our mouths as an expression of commitment and covenant loyalty. When we say these words out loud, we confess our faith in this way, it functions a bit like a kind of vow, an expression of this is who we are. This is what we are loyal to, that we are the people who confess these words. And the saying it out loud is then an expression of that, a kind of owning of it, a kind of uh, putting it out there where others can hear it. And we do that for and with each other. Remember, these are not simply internal things. It is a shared faith and something we are committed to and loyal to together. And the confessing of the words out loud makes that clear. Letter B. We confess with our mouths for the sake of the world as witness. We say these words out loud as an expression of the fact that we desire for them to be known. That we desire for the gospel that we confess, the creator who we love, the spirits present with us, we desire these things to be known publicly. Now, I want to dwell on that for a moment. How is this for the world? Well, 
First of all, the words themselves are a witness. They are a testimony. They are an an outward-facing thing. And we are propagating the words, perpetuating the words. We We are making sure the words continue to be heard in a way that literally is a witness. But there are other ways. The very gathering together, that what we do as a church physically is a public thing. We physically rearrange our schedules. We physically make priorities. We physically choose to come together in a place. And all of that is something that signals something to the world around us, to those we are in relationship and community with. And that too is part of our witness. And perhaps most of all, when we confess the words out loud, one of the things we said a moment ago is that we do so because we're confessing public truth. Truth about the real world. Truth about life as it is meant to be. And when we do that, it changes us. It forms us. We are, we are devoting ourselves then to a way of living that is with the grain of reality, how the world was made to work. And that too is part of our witness. We gather to study and to confess these things because we are convinced that the life that is formed by them is good, is true, is beautiful. That the life that is formed by them is the life that is light in a dark world. The life that allows us, enables us to be a blessing to those who are around us. All of that is expressed by the fact that we say these words out loud. And then letter C. We confess with our mouths for the sake of each other as encouragement. Psalm 78, when it is talking about the need to pass these things on, to make sure this knowledge is maintained generationally and within the covenant community, it does so with a very negative warning. The psalm goes on to tell the story of Israel time and again rebelling against the Lord, of God's grace and faithfulness and time and again delivering them and rescuing them, and of his faithfulness in bringing them to the point in the story where he provided the good King David in the time of prosperity for Israel. What that means is that Psalm 78 comes with a warning that if God's people don't do this faithfully, there are dangers, there are consequences, there are, there are places, things, things that will be forgotten that ought not to be forgotten. These words, the Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. This is a very clear, vivid picture of what happens when we forget. The Ephraimites, who were called in a particular circumstance, we actually don't know for sure, the circumstance being referred to here, who were called to join together with the covenant people to do the task they were called to do. Instead, they turned away from the battle. They fell away. And what was the reason? Why did they not keep God's covenant? Why did they refuse to walk according to his law? They forgot his works. Now, almost certainly, this does not mean they didn't have the information in their minds of what God had done. Almost certainly, from, we, again, we don't know the specific circumstance being spoken of, but we know of many in Scripture where the situation was a generation that they, they, they knew the things in the sense of information, but they fell away from living for them and toward them and living in faithfulness to God and in covenant with them. As we do this work of catechesis, of on a weekly rhythm, immersing ourselves in the things of God's word and being turned toward God, it is with the sense of this urgency 
that every one of us has circumstances, seasons of life, things we are facing, transitions we are going through, in which we are tempted, like the Ephraimites, to turn back on the day of battle. And we gather to confess these things out loud to encourage one another in those circumstances. This is never just information. This is one of the reasons we so desperately need this to be formed as a habit, something that happens automatically. There's no question when God's people gather, we gather, because there will be seasons where you won't want to, and it is in those seasons that it is most needed. Because we need the experience of confessing aloud together in response to God's word as a way that we encourage each other along the path of faithfulness. We can say it negatively, that we encourage each other in the moment of danger not to lay down our weapons like Ephraim did, not to stop living for and toward these things. But we can also say it positively, not so much in a moment of danger, but through all the seasons of life, all the various things, however big and small we go through, to continue growing, to continue maturing, to be continue being more and more formed by these truths. That ultimately is what Psalm 78 has in mind. Verse 7, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Letter D, this is the urgency of this task that we might not forget, but remember together through the generations and for the glory of the Creator. Hebrews 10, verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we do this often difficult work of gathering together in the evening on the Lord's Day to study these truths, we pray that you would make them fruitful in our midst, that you would make them fruitful for the growth and maturing and perseverance of our faith so that we might know this life of persevering in fellowship with you as a gift of your grace. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.